Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Logocentrism, the hallmark of Western culture, must be overcome. So claim postmodernists in the latest outbreak of this millennia-old virus. In this session, we diagnose postmodernism's terrorist attack on the Logos, with particular attention to its attack on the church and pastoral care. What is postmodernism? Why is the Logos such a threat to postmodernism? How does postmodernism impact the church? Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. We recently had the privilege of sitting at the feet of Reverend Dr. Gregory Schultz at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat. For episode 52 of the Wittenberg Hour, please enjoy Plenary Session 3 from Dr. Schultz. So we have talked at some length about Jesus, the Logos incarnate, John 1. Uh, in the second session this morning, we talked about us as being Logos-like, or to use the usual terminology in the great conversation, that we are the Logos species. I recommended that that means that we are the language species, uh, making some use of the richness of the term Logos. In this session, we're going to talk about uh, the biggest threat to a, an understanding of language, also to the actual use of scriptures, I think. Uh, so we're going to be talking about postmodernism. What you may want to watch is, uh, number one, you'd like to be sure that my presentation is credible. So you probably already sense that I'm somewhat opposed to postmodernism. Um, so you want to rely on the primary quotes. You also want to do some thinking for yourself, because I don't want to be guilty of, all of you working on logic, the straw man fallacy, right? Where it's, it's just ridiculously easy. <laughs> The, your opponent's not in the room, that you can set up something like postmodernism, make it look like the most stupid thing in the world, and you look real smart, and you haven't done any, any good, actually. So we need to take it seriously. Uh, and uh, uh, an element that I encourage you to watch for is, I don't think it's correct nor helpful to speak about postmodernism as a historical period. Postmodernism is an intellectual, or rather anti-intellectual, disposition. It's a frame of mind. It is a way of looking at things. It's not a particular phase in Western culture. The reason it looks like that to us is, as I'll explain, our immune system has been horribly suppressed, and therefore we are open to all sorts of postmodern nonsense in these latter days of Western culture, if it's still Western culture. <laughs> All right, so logocentrism and the acid attack of postmodernism. I'm back to the Heidegger quote. Language is the house of being. In its home, man dwells. Those who think and those who create with words are the guardians of this home. So I'd like to handle this, as I said, in isolation from Heidegger's biography and point out that I think he's got some of Luther's insights still kicking around in his head when he's saying things like this. So, language is the house of our being. My way of presenting this would be to paraphrase St. Paul in Acts 17. 
when St. Paul took on the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Athens on his second missionary journey, um, that, that one thing, is going to get this in, we find out that St. Paul was extremely well educated in Greek philosophy. The exact way he puts his finger on the vulnerability of both the Stoic and the Epicurean way of thinking about things, their denial of the possibility of life after biological death. That's where he blows them out of the water with the resurrection of Jesus. So he knows what he's doing. May I also point out, this is the same apostle who in writing to the Corinthians in his first letter, points out Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we, we apostles, we preach Christ crucified, Christ, the power of God, and the sophos of God. That's that same word in the compound philosophy. Christ is the capital W wisdom of God. Uh, so, now, when Heidegger says language is the house of being, from one of St. Paul's mentions in Acts 17, uh, I'd like to take this. The passage, the way we've learned it, of course, is, as some of your own poets have said, in God we live and move and have our being. Now, I think you could paraphrase it this way. In language, we live and move and have our being. I believe that it's somewhere between a paraphrase and a translation there to think about it because in God we live and move and have our being would have meant something a little bit different to the Greeks, right? But then when Paul uses it and we think about it, we have to think about logos, don't we? Uh, especially after the writing of John. The Logos became flesh and tabernacle for a while among us. So, as I say, somewhere between a paraphrase to make my point about language and a translation to understand how God has seen fit to reveal himself. In language, in the Logos, we live and move and have our being. Do you like the next part of that, Judo? In its home man dwells. This is not just how we get our start. This is not an incidental feature. This is the atmosphere that we breathe. We grow up in language. We express ourselves in language, as I've been saying. And then those who think and those create with words are the guardians of this home. That uh, has a huge dignity to the writing and reading that we do. Don't you think? Um, it's not only that the great writers and primar primarily, primarily and premierly the scripture writers, you could say. It's not, but it's not just that great writers do amazing things with words. It's rather that because of the species that we are, the logo species, when we work and create with words, we are, what, safeguarding? We are promulgating? We are sharing? We are communing together and helping other people to do that in language. So, um, if I put it this way, we have, ever since I arrived at Concordia University a few years ago, we have these slogans that keep popping up on the walls and all over the place about our, quote, vocations. The university will help you towards your vocation. Um, this is, at best, a secondary use of vocation, right, to talk about your career. By the way, for the younger folks here, or high school folks and those looking at college, you know full well that no matter what you major in, University, that's not necessarily going to be your career, right? I mean, the, the last data I saw was a couple of years ago was that in your generation, uh, no matter what you major in, you're going to have somewhere between 
seven or eight different career changes during your lifetime. So, uh, so this is a bit of a distraction. Also, Luther was not really talking about jobs when he talked about vocation. I would say he was primarily talking about our vocation as being the created and redeemed human being that we are. Right? So it's fundamentally a question of what does it mean to be a human being? And to be a human being means to be a guardian, a shepherd of words. Of words. Language. That'll inspire you for doing that next essay, won't it? Inspires me reading them. The medium is the message. So I've launched that out there a couple of times. Uh, I'm concerned with the means of grace as the media that are most important. Uh, but you can say this, as I mentioned, in a direct sense for language generally. And this is a reminder about how we've been looking at this historical development, even though everything has its center of gravity in Christ himself and the fullness of time. So uh, here is my uh, general introduction to this in that kind of a, a fast replay mode. So the first postmodernist that we can readily identify in Western thought is Protagoras. Man is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, things that are not that they are not. Uh, you will recognize this as moral relativism, right? We're not quite sure, based on his grammar, and you do want to pay attention to his exact text, not quite sure whether he means every individual, or maybe he means every city-state or tribe or something like that. Um, it is clear that he's talking about morality for sure. So in other words, the human being is the yardstick, the, here's a term, the norm, right? The standard by which you live. That's what he's actually saying. Uh, but maybe it's groups of people and maybe it's the individual. I'd also like to point out that for those of you who like to watch this sort of thing, Protagoras is probably also advertising cognitive relativism, which is to say he's not only saying everybody gets to make up their own morals, but he's apparently also saying that everybody makes up their own idea of truth. There's, there's nothing beyond that. It's just what we socially engineer it, we would say today, to be what we make it to be, what we autonomously, as a law to ourselves, uh, think things should be. Now, I call him the first postmodernist, and that's because even though we're used to referring to Protagoras as a relativist, that's what postmodernism is. Postmodernism is relativism. And this is the start of my making a quick but important case that postmodernism has been around for a long time. I suggested in an answer to a couple of the questions before lunch that Postmodernism is actually a recurring virus in, uh, in the body of Western culture. I'll explain that a bit more. I refer to Protagoras' cognitive and moral relativism. Now again, I'm sorry, my, my red apparently doesn't highlight but conceals a little bit. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle instituted Western philosophy, this is my thesis, for the purpose of combating the corrosive effects of postmodernism. So Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Western civilization, Western philosophy, they realized something in Protagoras that by and large we don't seem sharp enough to catch today. And that is, if this is what we're going to live by, it's going to be the death of us all. 
you know from the history of the Greeks, right, that the Greeks were not exactly a strong nation of dedicated patriots. They were a bunch of somewhat isolated, often at war, city-states, the Poli, right? Uh, these city-states were constantly at war with each other, except when Xerxes was invading, when the Persians would come down, think about the Battle of Thermopylae, then they'd get together, right? So Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were, were absolutely spot on to think, if Protagoras is going to set the tone for things, we are not going to have a Greek anything, you see? Because it's too fragmentary. It's, it's codifying, it's embodying the very notion of chaos politically. That's what this is doing, and it's just unacceptable. So I'd like to show you, I'll be real fast here, that actually each, each one of these major trend-setting, culture-setting thinkers had his own distinctive way of combating postmodern relativism. So for Socrates, it's the Socratic question. This is, this is proof positive that Socrates hated Protagorean relativism. So what's the Socratic question? Can I just be brief, and I know there's a great discussion to be had here. But, um, so Socrates went around asking, and then more importantly, teaching his younger students to ask questions about major moral items, especially in Athens where he lived. So the Socratic question is always in the form of what is X, where X is a major moral issue. So for instance, an easy one to start with, the Plato's Republic. Where Socrates is character in there. The question is, what is justice? In a dialogue called Euthyphro, that some of you may have read and talked about, the question is, what is piety or duty? In, in other writings, the question is, what is virtue? And so on, you see? So even though, this may alarm you, I think uh, we could have a perfectly fascinating afternoon discussion over what is blue. <laughs> Socrates, don't, don't worry about me. And, but you certainly don't have to worry about Socrates, right? Because he's not interested in that. He's interested in the moral stuff. And then, of course, that's why he was sentenced to death, which, by the way, was at his own uh, argument. If you remember, apology. He said, you have to put me to death. There's just no two ways about this. Because he kept teaching people to ask those in authority, what is justice? And they ended up saying, uh, uh, I don't know. Okay, now one more thing here. This is the big thing. Look at the form of the question. It isn't, what do you think? What is your opinion? What do the Thebans think? What do the Spartans think? What do the barbarians think if they think of all about justice? Right? It's, what is it? What is this one thing for all people? We would call that an objective absolute kind of question, I suppose. Okay? Uh, by the way, so doing the Socratic method is not ever just asking questions. Right? So a lot of education people think that's the Socratic method. Ask a bunch of questions. But it's asking questions in this format. What is this important feature of reality in reality? What is this justice? Um, I suggest we really need a conversation on that. Okay, so that's Socrates. Then, after Socrates, comes his most famous student, and the only reason we know anything about Socrates, because he wrote all this stuff down, that's Plato. So I'd love to act, do my, my uh, act about doing the story of Plato's cave. I've just got to assume this right now, though. So if you think about 
the kind of the culmination for Plato's cave. It's finding the idea of the good, good, good. Right? When, when uh, Socrates, uh, he's kind of figure in there, Socrates gets outside the cave, looks up at the sunlight, realizes that the sun accounts for life the way it is and gives us the illumination to see and know it. Plato writes in, this is book seven of Republic, Plato says, this is the idea of the good, which is beyond all being. Now, why does he say that? Because it's Socrates. He's, he's carrying the baton on a little further. It is the idea of the good. There are not multiple ideas of the good. The moral good is one normative, decisive, authoritative, universal thing. The idea of the good. Beyond all being so Plato does that, combating postmodern relativism. And here's Aristotle. To say that what is is not, and that what is not is, is to speak a lie. To say that what is is, and what is not is not, is to speak the truth. I know you're very impressed by translation. Uh, did you notice it's all single-syllable words? Uh, the great stuff can be put clearly under the three acts of the mind. You should be very, very, very suspicious of somebody who can't say clearly what they seem to be up to. Right? Okay. So, the actual definition of truth from Metaphysics 4, from Aristotle, this is called the Correspondence Theory of Truth. I would say it's the high watermark, the gold standard for truth theory. Uh, this is also uses the same word for truth that John uses to quote our Lord in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. The word life from Aristotle, Zoe is the one that's used. And the word for truth, also from Aristotle, Alephaya, is the word that's used. As I suggested, the Greeks were just kind of doing the warm-up act for the use of the Greek language in the New Testament. So, it doesn't, doesn't it look to you like Aristotle must have had Protagoras open on his desk there? Protagoras was saying, man is the measure of all things, of things that are, that they are things that are not, that they are not, which is to say we make up for ourselves what we want things to be. And Aristotle says, no, the truth is discovered. To say that what is, is, and what is not, is not, is to speak truth. Notice how objective and universal and, well, non-relativistic. Alright, so the term postmodernism uh, I will admit that wasn't being used by the Greeks when they were talking about Protagoras. But the term postmodernism first entered the philosophical lexicon in 1979. You know what that means? This is so recent that uh, you know we really, really hardly know what's going on in the term. It's only a couple decades old, at least in philosophical terms. We need a longer time, cross-generational time, really to check things out. But it first entered from a publication of the postmodern condition by Jean-Francois Lettar. I kidded in passing the other day. Do you want to watch out for French philosophers? I, have, I actually have had a chance to talk with some extremely helpful, healthy French philosophers. But all of the French philosophers that I read and teach are whack. <laughs> My wife and I have been careful about what water we drink when we go to Paris, because there's got to be something going on there. But post, uh, those of you who are teaching French are going to let me have it after a while, that's okay. I'm going to stand by my guns, though. In this area, it's like the epicenter for this. It's, it's, 
Yes. Oh yeah, all those guys are there too. They wouldn't really count as postmodernists in the way I'm describing it, but it is the case, don't you think? 20th century, the French philosophers, by and large, are people who gave us all sorts of grief and tried to find wisdom rather than helping us out. I have a side-by-side -side here. So, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, I recommend this as the single best site for any philosophical or thought research you want to do because it's online, it's very accessible, because it's uh, well kept up and fairly thorough. I think, you know, I tell my students, even if you're not doing a paper for me in a philosophy class or something, if you need to get at some of these topics, go to Stanford. They'll give you much more stuff than you need, and pretty much everything you want, just be patient and, and do your reading and thinking for yourself. Here is how the lofty and uh, exalted Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy describes postmodernism. That postmodernism is indefinable is a truism. Got that? Postmodernism is anything, it's something you can't define. Remember the three acts of the mind we were doing before? I won't say that all philosophers live and die by those, but I, I will say that we can hold each other's feet to the fact just by pointing out you haven't defined the terms that you're supposed to be talking about. And I think rightly so. So for the, the Stanford Encyclopedia to say it's a truism that postmodernism cannot be defined, you've got to find a, a short little set of emoticons to put behind that in your own notes. You know, sputtering tongues and, and uh, wagging whatever and sarcastic this or that. I think that's what's going on here. Okay, however, it can be described as a set of critical, strategic, and rhetorical practices employing concepts such as difference, that's a Différent in French, repetition, the trace, the simulacrum, and hyperreality to destabilize other concepts such as presence, identity, historical progress, epistemic certainty, and the university of meaning. Now I can define some of those terms in that you know, latter part for you, but it may be a waste of time if we're trying to understand postmodernism. Because postmodernism is committed to the notion that language is inherently meaningless, and if you're committed to that notion, you are going to generate a lot of jargon. And you're going to do everything you can in your following paragraph to undercut the previous paragraph. You're going to want to keep everybody totally unsettled. I'm going to suggest that this is methodologically anti-Christian. And I'll put it this way. Um, so, I'll just draw on Augustine, I noticed some smiles when I was quoting him the other day. Um, John Augustine, and Augustine says in the first paragraph of Confessions, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and we are not at rest until we find our rest in you. Postmodernism is restlessness and chaos as a method. So it's intended to put us all in an inquietus, that's uh, Augustine's Latin word, to make us all inquietus, disquieted. You could say that its whole function is to put us in a state of dis-ease, and I'm going to suggest that amounts to disease also. All right, so speaking of which, this is my own little way of putting this. <clears throat> shingles. Shingles virus? Okay, my dad had this a few years ago. What a miserable business. 
can't do anything about it. He couldn't sit down. He was down all on his shoulder and neck. Doctors were watching his eyes. See, you can't sit down. You can't stand up. You can't sleep. Right? Uh, but here's the, the mechanism is, is important. Shingles is created by the chickenpox virus. Once you have chickenpox, the virus remains in your nervous system. If your immune system weakens, the virus can reemerge as shingles. As you age, your immune system naturally becomes weaker, and your risk for shingles increases as you get older. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle founded Western philosophy in order to fortify our intellectual immune system against postmodernism, which is the outbreak of the shingles virus that originated with the chickenpox of Pythagorean relativism. That's my best, best run at visual thinking there to help you with that. Also, it makes you feel a little creepy. And, right? And I like that too. So I don't attach that to postmodernism. All right, so as I mentioned, it's really important to hear what the postmodernists say postmodernism is because I am no fan. Uh, so you want to see this for yourself. I, I need to tell you, I really, really, really had to work hard to find a definition of postmodernism from a postmodern thinker. Now, there, since then, there's been some stuff that pops up. I think if you check the scholarly resources of Wikipedia, even, you'll find probably mention of this quote under postmodernism. But some time ago, it wasn't, uh, wasn't all out there. So here it is. It's actually pretty close to a definition. Simplifying to the extreme, in postmodernism, we are altogether incredulous of any meta-narrative. What does that mean? Don't know for sure, right? It's just, it's kind of some, I don't know, smoke and mirrors thing. But I, I think uh, I think I'm going to do my best on here. So let's define the terms as they're presented to us and see what's going on. Meta narrative. What's a meta narrative? Generally speaking, I would say watch out for people who use words that start with meta, <laughs> especially if they're faculty members. <laughs> my observation, uh, the truly unworthy one. I've already identified myself as a crappy. But uh, I was trained that way in philosophy. My wife says it's my personality, but I, I think it's just my training. Um, so anyhow, if, if you think about meta anything, I think people tack the word meta on when they can't explain what the word is that they were supposed to explain in the first place. So I had this once with, I would just say it, previous place with the, the education department was talking about something. And they, they talked about cognition. And I said, well, you know, wait a minute. Before you're getting set to evaluate all the faculty on how we handle cognition, I said, how about if you just tell us what cognition is? Right. So something's done. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, what we're referring to is metacognition. <laughs> I, see, I don't, if you don't, if you can't define the term without that prefix, you shouldn't be allowed to use that term with the prefix. So anyhow, meta-narrative is being used intelligently by Leotard here. So you've got your narrative, which would be a coherent story, explanation, or theory of things. And meta-narrative would be the grand overall story of things. Okay? So, and what about that? We are altogether incredulous of any meta-narrative. What does that mean? Incredulous means not believing. So our intellectual stance is before any evidence, before, during, or after any arguments, without any possibility of changing our minds uh, in Christian terms, without any possibility of repentance, right? Uh, 
we are not going to believe any candidate grand overall story for anything. Now you might think that Leotard has the Bible in view here, you know, the greatest story ever told. Uh, but that's not actually true. He has science in view in the first place when he's mentioning this. And I think that's really quirky. I, I like studying science. It's not my, my normal home when I'm studying and reading. I would think that those of you who are trained in science would say, well, wait a minute. Of course I believe in a grand overall story. If I didn't, I couldn't do any science. Right? Because there's a, a coherence to this. There, there are assumptions of uniformity throughout the universe. That of course there's a grand overall story. Is there a hand up back here? Yeah. yeah. I just want to point out, if you're a postmodernist and you believe that um, you're altogether incredulous of any meta-narrative, that is an absolute truth, and you're contradicting yourself. Okay, we just caught the next point to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Great minds. Also endorsed by NASA. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that, shall we? Um, what do you mean? If they, if, they, if they say we will not believe in any meta-narrative, if you have an overarching meta-narrative or an overarching worldview that I disbelieve everything, do you absolutely believe that? Uh, those two are polar opposites and they don't exist together. Yeah, that's very sharp. Thanks so much. Um, so what we could say is this is a self-falsified statement. Let me, let me just boil it down a little bit more in a slightly more familiar form. If I said there is no such thing as truth, Right? Do you believe me? Do I, be do I believe me? Does the sentence support itself? You see? So actually what's happening, and this is just what our colleague was saying here, is there is an imported absolute in the statement. So there is no such thing as truth. I'm saying there's no, there's absolutely no such thing as absolute truth. Except lie. Right? So either the sentence doesn't make any sense, or if it does make sense, it wasn't worth saying. It's self-falsified. These, these statements are of that character. And you know what a true postmodern thinker is going to say? Yeah, I don't care. Right? And like, what was that? Wordsworth or something? Um, I'm contradicting myself? Very well. I am large and contain many contradictions. Uh, this just does not seem to be an issue, even when the subject at hand is something like the truth or a complete view of reality as it is. I just, I just realized, I thought about it a little bit further. If you're a postmodernist and you reject all worldviews, and because of your self-falsified statement, the only truth that you accept is yours, you are declaring yourself to be God. So yes. all postmodernists are means to a certain extent, I don't know if that's very correct. Sure, I think I'd offer you a, a term. I, I think your, your point is right, it's a kind of idolatry. But I, I want to I handle this in a way that will also engage us with how people are appropriate. So, um, if, if, we, if we think about the stance of postmodernism, um, as I'm about to show you in a couple of slides, people talk about doing things in a postmodern world or having a postmodern worldview or, uh, or, or so forth. This is actually impossible. There is no such thing as a postmodern worldview because postmodernism is anti-world. All those words that were piled up in the Stanford dictionary mention of how postmodernists 
talk, those are all disruptive, for which you can read destructive things to do. So the goal here is to blow up language. Oops. Um, I'd recommend just to uh, plant this thought with you. I'm not talking about all of these people, but I'm certainly willing to talk about uh, Nietzsche, and I am going to reference David Dott. Richard Rorty, Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-François Lertard, Jacques Derrida, and Michel Foucault are the big postmodern guns in, in terms of our generation right about now. Uh, I do think that it may be important to read them somewhat, but I've also got a bit of advice which I'm going to follow in a couple of my slides. I don't think it works very well to read their books, just to be honest. At the same time, I'm expecting that some of you are going to go ahead and read some of their books just to see for yourself. And Wish you Godspeed on that. And you know, double check, double check me that I'm not misrepresenting this. I think that's fine. But it's absolutely frustrating. Absolutely frustrating. The thing to do though is to catch their interviews. To catch their interviews, especially if you've got a, a good person who's interviewing them or they're in front of a, you know, an audience where somebody's asking them again about it. That's the way I think we get a handle here. Now, who uh, figures prominently in his denial of marriage? our last session tomorrow. I think that we have out there enough to move on to interviews. This is Kelvin and Hobbes. You guys are being very genial. I thought I was probably going to be in hot water with everybody staring me down about this point. So I put this in here. Can I just read this now? Yes, I can. Here we go. So little Calvin, right, sitting there in his uh, kindergarten or first grade desk. And here's the essay question. What important event took place on December 16, 1773? And now here's his answer. I do not believe in linear time. There is no past and future. All is one. And existence in the temporal sense is illusory. This question, therefore, is meaningless and impossible to answer. When in doubt, denial terms and definitions. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid it's not quite as funny as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, Johnny's not wrong when he says two plus two equals five, at least in Oregon, apparently. Um, wow, we are really in serious straits, and it's, it's maybe not right to be laughing quite so much at it, but maybe that is the right thing. Maybe ridicule is called satire, right? So do I understand that you're actually saying have it up there. Also, any chance to get Watterson in there's got to be the thing. Oh, what, what happened on that day? Awesome. Thank you. First class I've had somebody in who knew that actually. <laughs> Shared moral judgments 
handed down from one generation to the next. Anything that's not doing that is not a culture in an important sense. If you're an anthropologist, you can throw whatever you want at me, uh, and your title doesn't stick by my guns here. Culture is a normative thing. Any, anybody who is um, paints themselves in a corner where they say things like, we're not in a position to judge other cultures, right, because they're just being descriptive or they've got something else going on. They should not be allowed to get away with that. This is simply not true. Um, also, fundamentally, there's a humanity and a transcultural issue. But you've got to have a decent definition of culture. Otherwise, you know, I just get to say, oh, you're offending my culture. Oh, but and that's the end of everything, right? What good is that? All right, so anyhow, culture is shared moral judgments passed from one generation to the next. Western culture is distinguished by being a culture, moral judgments passed from one generation to the next, in Greek forms of thinking and with Judeo-Christian biblical content. Okay? That's, that's the definition of culture I'm recommending. Now, here's what I've got. I'm trying to figure out, in visual terms, a way to show what Derrida means when he says we have to get rid of the logocentrism of Western culture. So, first frame, the logos at the center of that first frame, kind of the, the top frame of the cartoon presentation, if you will, the logos at the center is Jesus. So, it's John chapter 1. Did Derrida want to get rid of Christ? He sure did. Um, I've got an interview thing coming up, I'll show you that later. He was absolutely opposed to what he called Messiah, Messiahism. Right. But here the term is logocentrism. Is he right that Western culture is very well understood as being something centered on Christ as the logos? Yes! Yes! That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, logos, from the Greek forms of thinking, Heraclitus and Aristotle and so forth, but the biblical content, after the fullness of time, by the end of the first century AD, of course, all, all the scriptures are complete, the New Testament's finished, but of uh, 93 or 4 with John Patmos, it's all done. And now, this becomes a formative, influential feature of thought for a millennium. So that's, that's very important. If you want to identify Western culture historically to say that it is a logos or the logos-centered culture, you're right. I think uh, we wish that all of our, our teachers out there would get this straight. But he wants to decenter or get rid of the logos because, well, have you noticed this? If you, if you say something with an ism, that's always a pejorative term, a put-down term, right? Logocentrism. Sounds like a disease you don't want to have, or an accusation you don't want somebody to make you, right? Uh, that's what he's doing. He's kind of playing around. Uh, but he wants to get the logos up. Now, here's my, here's my observation. The second frame, the one down, is where I'll grant for the discussion that we take the logos out to see what that means. So take the guy's philosophy, play it out, and see what this does. You take the logos out, you can get rid of Christ from Western culture. It's pretty much happening, right? You can get rid of Christ. I was uh, doing some teaching in Cambridge a while ago. Some of us are talking about the wonders of London and, and the UK. And uh, we had a, my wife and I had a chance to uh, be the chaperones, more or less, for some of the students there in Cambridge to go on a visit to Cathedral. Some of you been there? 
It's a little bit outside. It's in the uh, Cambridge County, so to speak. Just a major cathedral. They happen to house the UK Stained Glass Museum. Okay? This is on one of the balconies of this huge cathedral. And we, we were privileged to have the, the director and curator for the Stained Glass Museum lead our group of students through and stained glass windows from before the medieval period, actually, through the medieval, uh, pointing out the colors, the craft, and especially the subjects of those stained glass windows. And uh, we also thank you very much to our office. I, I went over to our office and I said, you know, I know everybody says thank you, but we really appreciate you leading us through all this. It's pretty significant for our students. And she said, oh no, Dr. Schultz, let me thank you. I hardly ever get a group like this. Most often, in fact, she said almost always, people come through and they have no idea who the subjects of the stained glass windows are. They don't know Samson in the Bible. They don't know the Trinity stuff. They have no idea what's going on here, but your students know. And they talked about it, and they admired it. She said, no, thank you. Now, I would just say, the UK, right? A lot of Christian stuff in the background. We're in this, this cathedral, that's where this is all housed. And the kids just don't know scripture at all. Alright, so pull the locus up. You can get rid of Jesus. Pull him up. What else happens? The Greek logos goes with him. For so long, the logos thinking of Aristotle and Heraclitus has been fused together with the Logos reality of Jesus as the incarnate Logos, that to get rid of Christ the Logos, in other words, to scrub out the biblical religion, right, from Western culture, means you also lose reason and logic. It's inevitable, and we're reaping the fruits of that today, aren't we? This was, this was the big, big virus that has been hitting us in the universities for quite a while. The neo-Marxism is kind of a come-along. But this, this is the kind of the dynamite um, academic stuff. It's, it's one thing for a, a, a bunch of French dilettantes to, to figure out whether you can get rid of Christ and get rid of the Logos and stuff. But it's something else when that pervades professors and then you know, gets down. I, I think of myself as kind of a mid-level professor, mid-level university in the grand scene. It permeates down to the rest of us and it becomes a license not to think, not to read, not to trust language, not to use language at all. So, very pernicious. Sir Hannibal. Yeah. yeah, I was just, it seems like you're, um, what you're leading us down is the truth of God's word, where it says, the truth says, and it's all the things of God. So, when you, when you, like, presuppositional objects, you can't, you can't um, speak about any normative norms that ignore the norm without the definition of God being that normative norm that norms the norms. So you, you, you take God out of it and then you lose all definition of everything. Therefore, you can't define hope, you can't define life, you can't define justice. And you lose it all? Very well articulated. Uh, thanks. I, I would say, uh, to, to emphasize or amplify that a bit more, I'm also saying this is more fundamental than just an illiteracy 
in the biblical stuff, as you started to say. It, it is pernicious. It is uh, insidious. It is, as I suggest in my subtitle, an acid attack in the face of all of us. Now, I mean that. I mean to use that particular example. Can you think of anything more, more vicious and evil to do to a person? It'd be hard to think of more, many more things than these acid attacks that take place, mostly over in the Mideast. Right, so for, for whatever reason or no reason at all, uh, men primarily will take um, a, a caustic acid and throw it in the face of a woman to attack her. Now, what's, the, what's the outcome of that? Pain? disfigurement, uh, it, it is a, a tremendous insult to another human being, a, a malice of forethought on steroids. It's just quite horrible. I, I can't think of a, a, a more appropriate, a more violently appropriate, and anti-human appropriate example than acid attempts to describe what postmodernism is. This is this is anti-intellectual, anti-logos, anti-scriptural, anti-human being. Especially, you know, if, if, uh, if I'm right to point out that biblically and in Western civilization, we've understood the human being as the language being to attack the language is an attack on the essence of what it means to be human at the same time that they're endeavoring to deprive us of the means by which we understand what's going on and can rectify it. We'll take a question. I think we've got some more. I should probably hurry through here so you can see everything and then ask the question. So, is the postmodernist tool then deconstructionism? It is. Can, I'm going to do my thing again and say I'm talking about that tomorrow. Okay, but, but the short answer is yes, you're right. But there are two forms of deconstruction there's a healthy philosophical approach, and then there's the, the god awful. Um, acid approach that they were about takes. But I'll, I'll be a little bit more tomorrow than that. Can I, can I hold you off a little bit or a bit? Yeah, okay. I'm sorry, I'm doing this to myself by answering questions. Okay, so here. Um, this is uh, this is Jacques Derrida in an interview at Villanova University. Remember I said, you're not going to catch these guys. You're actually probably going to get totally flustered and depressed by trying to read them in quotes. But um, you can catch them and their real thinking in interviews where it's harder to hide behind the mechanism of your writing and underwriting and overwriting and rewriting. To address more directly the question of religion, this is David Al being asked what about the Bible. Again, in an oversimplifying way, I would say this. First, I have no stable position on the texts you mentioned. Now I'm thinking, what we want to catch here is some, somebody says, I have no stable position on the text that, that you're trying to teach me. Uh, I think you should know that you've got one hard cell coming up. And maybe you should also say a little preemptively, uh, well, I understand that. Apart from Christ and the security of the scriptures, people like you are, of course, in a very unstable position. Right? So you don't get to say, we're all together incredulous of any meta-narrative and, and get your way with that. We're going to say, well, that is really sad. That's really unrealistic. What kind of a self-falsifying life philosophy do you have? You know? So here it is. I would say this. First, I have no stable position. Next mention. 
the profits and the Bible. For me, this is an open field, and I can receive the most necessary provocations from these texts as well, as at the same time from Plato and others. For me, there is no such thing as religion. Within what one calls religion, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and other religions, there are again tensions, especially those of the prophets, which cannot be reduced to an institution, to a corpus, to a system. I want the right to read these texts in a way which has to be constantly reinvented. Every speech act, you know, is fundamentally a promise. The universal structure of the promise is what I call the messianic structure. The messianic structure is not limited to what I call messianisms, Judaism thing again, that is Jewish, Christian, or Islamic messianism. There is no Islamic messianism, is there? But, uh, to these determinate figures and forms of the messiah, the messiah is not some future present Brother pastors, let's make a note that the first opportunity we want to talk in a sermon about Jesus being the future present. Right? Here he is, and with all the guaranteed promise of our future eternity with him in heaven, you can count on Christ. Alright. There is some ambiguity in the messianic structure. We wait for something we would not like to wait for. That is another name for death. Now, if you kind of connect the dots, he has just said that to believe in Messiah is to worship death. Actually. But as I say, this is about as close as you're going to get. Why is that? Well, I'm going to... Am I okay to be going until... What time did we stay? It was originally two, wasn't it? Fifteen. There's the official word. Thank you. You should be wearing a striped shirt. <laughs> Maybe we should take a collection. Okay, so I'm hastening on here. So now I'm concerned about postmodernism being brought into the church. I think I indicated that it, it certainly is pervasive in higher education and has trickled down through the professors to the teachers in our classrooms, right, and our parents. Uh, so, here are two examples. The first one is from James K. Smith. He's from Calvin College. Uh, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism Taking Derrida, Foucault, and so forth to church is the title of this book. Derrida. Deconstructions, here we are. Deconstructions claim that there is, quote, nothing outside the text, end quote, can be considered a radical translation of the Reformation principle, sola scriptura. Now, this is truly bizarre, but I, I do want to reflect what, what Smith is actually saying here. Uh, first of all, I mentioned he's from Calvin College. So he is a reformed philosopher, thinker. And you know what that means in regard to the church? He doesn't have a doctrine of the church. Reformed people are always looking for a doctrine of the church. Um, I think Herman Sassy pointed this out that it's only with Lutheranism that you have for the first time a doctrine of church and ministry. Okay. So just think about that for a second, whether you agree or not, I think it's functional. Right? Um, so he's looking for something. So this is part of the emergent church movement, you see. For, for our reformed neighbors, I think the church is always emerging. They're, they're always looking for some sort of coherent doctrine of church and ministry. You and I can say, well, wait a minute. 
Church is the activity of God's means of grace. So the minister is the person who's responsible to be sure the ministry of the means of grace is ongoing. So I especially call them a congregation. Uh, but, you know, like Luther said, as long as there is baptism going on, you can be sure that there are believers in that church because of the means of grace. So we've got an extraordinary robust biblical understanding, but not so But look at, look at the quote. What does sola scriptura mean? We're saved, other than nisi per it doesn't work. So we're saved according to the word, the law of the scriptures, right? And Smith is saying that Derrida is saying that you just pay attention to the text. Now, actually, I, I really can't believe that Smith, for his reputation, he's got a series of books like this, that he's seriously reading Derrida that way. Because, as we started to hear before, Derrida would say there's nothing outside the text, but he also explicitly says there's nothing in the text either. <laughs> what a great... What a great way to restate the Reformation principle, sola scriptura. We're only going to look at the text, which has absolutely no meaning to it whatsoever. Why are you putting a phrase from Luther together with that nonsense? This is, this is bottles of mine. All right, so here's my reply. It is not simply that they deny the incarnate logos, who identifies himself as the truth in John 14, of the greatest meta-narrative ever told. The reality is that postmodernists teach and promote the preemptive surrender of language, the essential feature of our humanity, and the means by which God reveals himself to us. For the scriptures are language. It is language that we use to preach and to pray, to confess and to absolve. Notice that according to postmodernism, language itself is a vanity of vapor. Postmodernism is an assertion of ecclesiastical proportions, a nihilism that is always engaged in denying the words of the one shepherd. A second uh, representative is James Wells from uh, one of our seminaries, and his book is What Does This Mean? Principles of Biblical Interpretation in the Postmodern World. Now here, I want to be especially careful to point you to, to look at whether I'm faithfully giving quotes and understandings from his book. Um, and here, here is one. And I, I think this is about all it takes to make the point. Observers from within and without may recognize a postmodern ring to what is here advanced. I mean, his subtitle is Principles of Biblical Interpretation in the Postmodern World. And they are right. But it is the contention of this author that postmodernism, for all of its excesses, is not our enemy, but a sort of friend. Right, now here's my reply. What does this mean? Promoting the sinking of the church's hermeneutics with the postmodern world. Wells's friendship fellowship notwithstanding. In point of fact, postmodernism maintains that there is no world in the first place. It is therefore not sensical ever to speak of a postmodern world. For the postmodernist, there is no ordered creation, no logos finding all things in a fundamental Christ-centered coherence, contrary to Colossians 1, 15-18. Postmodernism uh, uh, teaches flux and chaos. There is no postmodern world to befriend. 
there is only this vital contagion. So, what are the consequences of befriending postmodernism? Postmodernism is no friend to the pastor's work as biblical exegete. Postmodernism is a Mephistopheles. This is signing your soul over to the devil. And, and I, I, I understand the weight of this, but I, I also like to understand the weight of, of this book being used uh, in our circle. Uh, this is really bad. Uh, I also am uh, pleased to give you the fuller text for this. I can well imagine you're going to want to double check me a lot more on this one. So over on the, the table by our leaders over there, there are copies of two different essays of mine. One of them is headed Nisi Ervergo, talks about the church's ministry and postmodernism. That's the one that, that will address these two books, for instance. So please feel free to take a copy. It was published in Lagiva. Alright, so here we are again. I, I think that what you want to do is take the Bible passages and the confessional authoritative summaries of the normative scriptures and put them side by side with these statements that are apparently been made, being made in all seriousness. God cannot be treated with God, cannot be apprehended, nisi per verbum, or except through the word. Uh, as I explained in that essay, we, we Lutherans ought to know better than anybody else, and we have been through this in the LCMS before, putting all sorts of signs and methods and whatnot between the pastor and the study and preaching of the Word, between the Bible reader and the holy, effective text of Scripture itself. Well, we have to stay on our guard against this, and postmodernism is an absolutely quirky, bizarre, um, potentially fatal kind of thing for us to be welcoming into the church. I'm not afraid of postmodernism, but I'm somewhat concerned if pastors are endorsing it. Okay, so we are nearing the end of our time, but we should, should respect some of the questions that you folks are going to have to hold on to. So, question. How does the pilot say what is true? Yes. Is he following, uh, is it Pythagoras? Pythagorean? Pythagoras? Pythagoras, sorry. Pythagoras. Pythagoras or Socrates? Talk about speech acts. We both were uh, slurring that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, um, maybe. I think I think uh, Pontius Pilate was just mimicking a cliche he learned in PS number XVI in Rome. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's kind of this Roman cynicism. Yeah. But, to, to take your question to heart, it would be that same sort of thing, wouldn't it? Would that same sort
We did not follow cleverly invented stories, his exact word is mythoi. <laughs> we did not follow mythoi when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So, uh, C.S. Lewis does this too, and I and it talks about the Christian death. And maybe, or maybe not, in the middle of the 20th century, we get away with that, and people would not confuse the two today. That's just, I think that's bad teaching for a writer to do that. Sorry for the direct answer. That's, right. that's why you asked, right? Yeah, no, and I think Scruton's definition is spot on and, and does us a world of good. Shared moral judgments transmitted trans cross generationally, and Western. Um, these are done in Greek forms of thinking and with Judeo-Christian biblical content. Got to have something more robust. These authors owe it to us to give us something more normative and robust. Yes? Um, how Thank you. I, I think 
the, the, the term that probably will be used for those conversations going forward is autonomy. That's, that's the word for today, especially bioethics, which literally means to be a law or a norm by yourself. See Nietzsche for that. Right. I guess my, I had an observation that I was wondering if you, wondering if you would agree with. Um, while I certainly don't disagree with the impact that postmodernism is having on culture or society, it seems to me that most of the people I know um, outside of the faith are not necessarily postmodernist thinkers themselves, but that this the um, infection of postmodernism has just resulted in people not knowing how to think critically or not knowing how to express what they believe. It's not that they don't believe in anything uh, or that anything is objective. It's that they don't know how to approach things critically or analyze things logically. And so they, kind of, they end up just absorbing and accepting whatever they're told is true through the education system or through the media or through politics or whatever because they don't know how to take that and digest it and really think about is this true or not. And it seems like that, that's, that's where postmodernism is having the widest impact. I think a lot of people, most people are smart enough to just say, well, something's got to be true because of these like, self-defeating statements. You know, if you think about it for a little bit, then you realize it can't be true. But um, the more it infects kind of the way we educate and the way we teach people, the less equipped society is to think about a statement and question whether it's logical and then they're just left being subject to being influenced by whatever you know, the popular agenda is. Yeah, thanks. So two things. Um, first of all, that observation bears a lot more thought. Sorry, we're almost out of time. Sure. But that's for other conversations too. Second thing is, um, bless you my son, I'm, I'm glad you have that view. I don't share that. And not, we're not talking about a difference in understanding truth or anything. I think that, that what you're describing is what was the case a while ago. But now, things have been so pernicious among those who teach and those who write that we are in a far more desperate situation than, than you were just describing. Also, can I say, I, I, would, I wish that I were wrong and that you were right. So you're, so you're saying that you, you believe that the, that the majority of people are now are I don't know about the majority, but uh, teachers, authors, professors, some pastors, Right? You see? So, uh, it, our, our recent history, let's say the last 50 years, last two generations or so, um, our recent history is kind of reminiscent of Jesus talking about the person having the demons cast out, and then the de more demons come because they find out things empty and cleaned up. You know, so we emptied out our little minds 50 years ago. You can, I mean, we, by generally, we in the West. Uh, we emptied them out, we showed up in our education at the time. Uh, a little bit of the after bloom of that was this, this business about, you know, you can't talk about Christ or sing Christmas songs in public schools, you can't pray. That, that was just kind of the last little gasp to that. What we're in today, though, is, I think, and again, I'd love to be wrong, but I think is, we have had a generation or more of teachers who have been schooled in postmodern disposition. The problem, in fact, I think, is obviously with the professors right now, but it's been with their professors too, quite likely. 
postmodernism could break up. In a small way, if we were just reading Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, a lot of people would have seen what was going on and would have addressed it in a secular way, right? In a common sense way. You said it kind of critical thinking way. Though, by the way, you want to watch out that term critical thinking, because that is a little bit of a buzzword, kind of like critical race theory, actually. Um, so, but, but then the, the other part of that is how to address it. So I think the diagnosis is important. It can't get much worse than this. It can't get much worse than this. Because the very means by which we have fellowship with each other as human beings, and even more importantly, by which God has fellowship with us through the means of grace, those have been under onslaught for 30, 40, 50 years. You see? And, and the attack has not been mounted. Is the church going to perish? No, I have it on good authority that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. But what about the churches in America? What about the LCMS? What about, you know, there's, there's no such promise for our church bodies. And what about our, our schools? What about our teachers and professors? In a postmodernism, the virus keeps coming up. Say, oh, I baptize you in the 
their sword arms out of the baptism waters, you see. Baptism doesn't work that way. It's, it's not applied on us. It is you, my name. You, the water and the word. Right? So uh, the, the address of the needs of grace is to the individual. So I don't know about culture. I've got a lot of regard for ours because I'm kind of in two worlds. I'm happy to speak up about cultural issues too. But the means of grace are for individuals. So the thing is, church work, Lutheran education work, teaching your kids. And um, I just so the thought of it too. Um, I, I have been reading a little bit about this, talking about this with some people. I would just like to reserve uh, any endorsement of anything like the Benedict option of us holding up and just doing Lutheran stuff with Lutherans together. We've also got a mandate, don't we, to share this gospel with all creatures. So with our education, which should be really good, you know, and, and with our church work, which, thanks be to the Lord, we've got the means of grace in the period. That's where we are, are influencing. And we're not, we're not actually interested in the culture. C.S. for last quote here. Weight of glory, right? Remember, glory means weight, actually, in the Old Testament scriptures. God is heavy. Give him the weight he deserves. Glorify him. So C.S. Lewis, the weight of glory. You remember this, right? You have never met a truly mortal human being. Every person that you meet today is in eternity. Either going to be being so hideous that you, you meet nothing like it, except perhaps in your experience, or of being so glorious, so radiant, that you'd be tempted, if you'd see them now the way they're going to be, to fall down and worship them. Everlasting horrors, everlasting glories. These are the persons whom we marry, snub, and exploit. And then right in that same section, Lewis says, immortals, right? The existence of civilizations, I'll say cultures, to the individual human being is like that of a gnat. And we know this from Daniel, and we know this from the Old Testament scriptures. Those cultures come and go. But the human being endures forever. We are everlasting. So, I think I'm, I just went over time significantly. So uh, there's a little bit more coming. Apparently, thank you. Apparently, I've got a lot of uh, debts to pay with questions I said I'd be answering later on. Tomorrow, so you might be sure to be here tomorrow morning to be all caffeinated and ready to go. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.